Welcome to the Frontline Conversations podcast, a platform that discusses issues around public policy and current affairs. We can't wait to share insights that matter to you. Are you ready to have the conversation? This is Frontline Conversations. Greetings to the listeners at home and welcome to another episode of Frontline Conversations, a platform that discusses everything around public policy. We do hope you find today's episode informative. Uh, My name is Pearl Mube and I'm going to be one of your co-hosts for today's episode. Before I introduce, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest for today, um, before I introduce our guest, I am just going to introduce my fellow co-hosts for today's episode. I am joined by Mr. Calvin McClough. Calvin, say hi. Hi. <laughs> I'm also joined by Mr. Zamova Kesomklava. Good afternoon. Yes, we'll be steering the ship together. Um, and I'm very excited to um, introduce our guest for today. Um, and that is Dr. Geraldine Fraser-Mulegedi. Um, we are very honored to have you as a guest. Um, She is um, described as a passionate leader in the continent's socio-economic transformation. She is no stranger in any way to the public policy space. She has served as a Minister of Public Service and Administration from 1999 to 2008. That's a long time. Uh, She currently serves as a chairman for Tiger Brands. Uh, She's also a chancellor for NMU. Um, Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. We are so, so thrilled to have you as a guest today on uh, today's episode. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Okay, going on to the questions and just um, getting some insights from you. Uh, Before we accuse you of anything else, I gave um, the the, the listeners a bit of a background into, you know, what you do and what you've been involved in. But I think we'd like to hear it from, from you directly. What, what keeps you busy? Um, what are you involved in? Um, yeah, just give us a short breakdown into who you are and what you do. You know, it's really great to join you guys um, and to join Frontline Africa today. I think uh, as we said in an off- offline discussion or yourselves, you said, you've more than cut your teeth. You're no longer toddlers. You're sort of in the teens now. So I think that's really great. Thanks for having me. So what keeps me busy at the moment? So I'm going to talk about now and a bit about the past as well. As you indicated, I am the Chancellor of the Nelson Mandela University. Um, And this, as you are aware, is a titular role. where the heavy lifting from a governance perspective is done by the chair of council, Um, the heavy lifting from running the university perspective is done by the vice chancellor. And I think we feel quite honored that we are three women at the helm of the university in terms of its overall governance and and, and taking things forward. So I, I feel quite honored to be in this particular role, uh, um, noting the fact, as I said earlier, it's titular. The second issue that I'd want to raise um, is the fact that I serve on the boards of three listed companies. So I am the chair of Tiger Brands. 
I am also the um, a non-executive director of Exaro. Um, it's, I am its lead independent director, as well as the chair of the social and ethics committee. And it's quite an exciting role as well. And then I serve on the Standard Bank Group Board and Standard Bank South Africa Board. In addition to that, I also do and pursue a couple of passions. And one of them is that I serve as the chair of the Committee of Experts on Public Administration of the United Nations. So this is a subsidiary body of the UN. And uh, we are 24 members from across the world. So from different regions of the world and uh, our subsidiary body reports to the Social and Economic Council of the UN. We meet in person, well, for the past two years, we've met virtually sort of once a year. And as chair, I'm involved in intercessional meetings between that. So it sort of keeps my mind very much alive in the public service and public administration space, because that's where a lot of the thinking, development of new thinking, challenging what happens, uh, takes place at a global level. And we're also quite committed to the to ensuring the implementation of Sustainable Development Goal 16. And that goal looks at the whole issue of institutions as well as peace and justice related matters. And then of course, back home attached to a think tank called the Mapungupwe Institute of Strategic Reflections. I'm the chair of its governing council. And then I also work uh, with the Tabumbeki Foundation on the very exciting project of the Tabumbeki School um, that's currently being built and it's attached to UNISA at this point in time. So lots of little things. And I must say I'm a grandparent as well. And that's a great pride for me. So. <laughs> Uh, two grandchildren, uh, respectively, 11 months and uh, uh, two years, three years now going on 35, it seems sometimes. So that's a little bit about what I'm doing. You asked the question and I could have gone on even further and I could have gone <laughs> fast, but it's going to take too much time. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I think you just to... Um, Go on to, to the first question. You you spoke about being part of the, the committee of experts on public service. I think yeah. Let, let's get into public service in in, in South Africa. Um, recently, cabinet approved the national implementation framework towards the professionalization of the public service. And before that, we've seen reports of the. Um, uh, number of senior officials within government who are unqualified for their positions. And obviously that has affected uh, service delivery and also having a quality uh, public service. So in your view, how did we get to such a situation? And what has it done to have the image of public service and attraction of qualified people to the public service? 
Um, as was pointed out in the introduction, I served my second cabinet post because my first post was as Minister for Welfare and Population Development before it became social development. And my second post in uh, cabinet in 1999 under President Tabumbeki was as Minister for Public Service and Administration. Um, quite an exciting time and especially so from a policy perspective, as well as translating policy into implementation. Um, so on the issue of professionalization of the public service, I just want to take you to the constitution and ch chapter 10 of the constitution that uh, talks about in section 1951A, um, but let me start with the preamble. It said public administration must be governed by democratic values and principles enshrined in the constitution, including the following principles. And the first one, A, is a high standard of professional ethics must be promoted and maintained. It talks about the resources, it talks about the public service being development oriented, it talks about impartial, um, fair, equitable service without bias, which I think is quite important. And so it goes on. So I mean, the, the, the constitution is quite clear about the need of professionalism, because it also talks to the Public Service Commission in 1962, where it talks about their independence, but it then goes on to say that they've got to perform their functions without fear, favor, or prejudice in the interest of the maintenance of an effective and efficient public service and a high standard of professional ethics in the public service. And it talks about values and principles. So firstly, those who serve in the public service, our expectation is that these are professionals. Our expectation is that they come in for service and this is in the interest of the people. And hence you heard uh, under Minister Zola Square, he spoke about Batupile during my tenure together with the team, we looked at how we could deepen these uh, Batupile people first principles. And, and the Department of Public Service along with the commission itself also ensures that the certain standards are maintained in order for us to get the people side right. Because when you talk professionalism, you're talking about people. And we coined in that time, even a, a bit of a, a phrase that, that sort of said that we wanted the public service to be an employer of choice. Any South African should see the public service as the place to work. And it is not coming here as a grudge job 
or coming into public service and saying, uh, you know, there's this uh, bit of a cliche that says a job is a job. It's not that. <laughs> it's got to be a calling. And that was our intention. Uh, the department, again, together with the commission, had to ensure that in the appointment of public servants at national and provincial level, that the required regulatory environment was followed. So if it has not been followed, and if there are unqualified public servants and public servants that are not competent, it means that there's been a breakdown in terms of the provision of services by the department, in terms of a, the monitoring by the commission, and that the various government departments through the heads of departments, their directors general, and overseen by the executive authorities, they have fallen foul of ensuring the application of this. So it's well and good to talk about a framework, but where the rubber hits the road is in implementation. Do we ensure that the management in the departments follow through on appointments? Have we done and has the Public Service Commission for example, done an audit of the interview panels that have sat on the appointment of staff. And, and one point that's being pushed by the school, by the public service school, is the whole issue of an entry exam. And I need to talk about that because on that particular one, we had actually removed the, uh, the, the whole issue of the need for the entrance exam into the public service. And I think it's, an, it's appropriate that it's reinstated because the point of that is to ensure that when people come into the public service, one, there's an understanding and there's sort of a common entry um, entrance exam if you fail that exam, and this exam should be highly competitive. If you fail that exam, you fail entry into the public service. Um, and, and, and we must make that uh, sort of not an elusive value professionalism, but make it very core to what it should be. And if you look at the moment at challenges around uh, service delivery in at all levels of government, that's a problem. So the last point I want to make on this particular question is the one uh, that, uh, you know, in my last budget vote speech in 2008, we actually spoke about the need to have what we call one single public service. Now, I must explain this a little bit. The first initiative to have a single public service was when we brought together uh, between 11 and 14 disparate services into one. Because you'd remember the public service was divided racially, and then it was divided according to Bantustans and self-governing territories and all. And we had to bring it together to be one. 
A second point around uh, creating one public service is what many people may forget is that people earn salaries according to their race at the point. And besides that, they also earn a salary based on their gender. And we changed that. South Africa was actually one of the leading countries that made this change. And this is even amongst peers internationally, that we led the change where we ensured that there was parity in remuneration for jobs of equal value. And then as part of our bid to professionalize, we also created a senior management service, a cadership, where there was what we called the mandarins, as the Chinese would put it of uh, senior managers that uh, uh, was the cohort between chief director up to director general, up to director general level. And they got a particular remuneration package. Um, part of this as well was to be able to recruit the best and the brightest in the country. And this was also to be intergenerational, where you brought together competence with experience and so on. And, and, and that was the, the point of it. And, and how, how did we come to this point now where the public, or public servants are largely viewed as uh, incompetent, some would also say lazy. And there's also been talked that the public service is bloated and, and the, there's a need to, to make it more leaner. How do you think we, we got to this point and how do we remedy it? And, and perhaps if I could just uh, add um, a question as, as well as a follow-up question. The, the, the role of politics, um, you may very well uh, be very familiar with the concept of uh, political administrative interface. And I think the National Development Plan does talk about the need to, as it were, constrain uh, politics into the public service. Because uh, we know that at some point we have a, a, a new minister, maybe your successor, uh, removing a director general, they impose uh, their own and so on and so on. So each time there's a change at the political level, there's a change at the administrative level, and that you know creates problems for the continuation of uh, of, of service delivery, the public service. So I'm I'm asking this question because some people are putting it on on politics and say look, there is just no political will to make sure that the public service remains as intact as it should be. So you're raising very interesting questions, uh, and I will. Uh, start with the point of you say what went wrong and you talk about a bloated uh, public service. So I think we must be very careful when we use the term bloated. And, and, and let me start at a different point. I'm going to start with a reality of 2021 and COVID. And I think across the world, uh, there's a greater realization that uh, the public service is very important. And particularly, particularly when we look at frontline workers, 
And I'm going to focus on health workers, but they're not the only frontline workers. You know, at this particular point in time, I don't think we can talk about bloatedness in the health sector. As a matter of fact, you would have heard over recent days, a call being made for the recruitment of more health workers, particular, and, and here I'm even talking outside of doctors who are very critical part of health workers, but more health workers to assist with the reality of the strain the pandemic is placing on our health services. So I think we, we need to be very careful on how we bandy about bloatedness. The second issue as well, and I have raised this on a, numer a number of occasions because we had started working on it uh, uh, before, well before 2008, where we looked at developing a database, a skills database, doing a skills audit. Good. What are the skills that, what are the skills that we have? Where are they? And is the distribution right? So if you look at the public service, for example, and this is a number that goes back two years, we had um, around 1.1 million public servants. I wouldn't automatically say that that is a bloated figure if you look at the population of close to 50 million people. But the issue is where are they located? And when I looked at a breakdown of those numbers, the largest number of public servants in certain sectors are at the headquarters level. Now, something wrong with that. You can't have that at that level. And that's why we try to build what we call a single public service that would allow the mobility of public servants across the three spheres of government. So we know that there's quite a challenge at local government level. And if there's an expertise that's either there at national or provincial government, we must ensure the mobility of that expertise, that professional, down to a local government level, or even vice versa. So there's been a challenge around that. I also found another um, interesting data point, and that was that, uh, you know, everyone says you have an aging public service, but in uh, when I looked at the figures at the time, there was also quite a large number of public servants that have been in the public service for a shorter period of time and was also in the age cohort between 25 and 40 plus, you know, looking at that. So again, it's doing a break breakdown and dissecting because I think we must be careful of simply a knee-jerk response without doing an analysis of the data and what the public service uh, where we find largest numbers. And I think it's very clear to me that in health, in education, when it comes to the issue of uh, police, 
and corrections, you've got to look at the numbers there to a degree. In other areas, uh, we may want and should have particular skill sets, but the numbers should look smaller. So enough of that. So what about the issue of uh, the political administrative interface and how do we deal with that particular challenge? And I can tell you, this is an age old problem and it's there all over the world. And I'm going to deal with this in two parts. The first issue on appointments, when a minister comes in, the minister wants her or his own director general. You don't want the person that you found there. Now, if the person who's there have the required skills and competencies, there shouldn't really be a need to remove that uh, director general. And, and here, I'd, I'd, I'd want to go to the issue that you've raised in the beginning around appointments. You know, are the people who are not appropriately qualified? And I think this happens when your appointment is entirely subjective, rather than going through the recruitment process that has been spelled out both within the Public Service Commission and the Department of Public Service. Because at the end of the day, from my recollection, a panel that's constituted is constituted of a minimum of three ministers, including the minister of the department that appoints the person. And there should also be a representative from the Public Service Commission on that panel. There's clear requirements according to uh, the advert on how that appointment is made. That is engaged with, and the Minister of Public Service should generally be on that panel. Um, because at the end of the day, it's not the Minister of the Appointing Department that takes that uh, appointment to cabinet. It goes through the Minister of Public Service and that appointment is discussed in cabinet. And during our time, there were instances when we turned back a candidate because we felt that person did not have either the qualifications or the competence for a particular job. And that should be the manner in which it is dealt with and it never be subjected. Second part to this is the fact that um, you know, we should move towards a, a situation now where directors general and deputy directors general should not be on contract. And that's what we intended moving to during my tenure. But, uh, and when I say my tenure, I'm not talking about me as an individual, I'm talking about the cabinet collective yes. because we were not a federation of ministers, we were a cabinet of ministers. There's too many instances where you hear ministers engage as though they are uh, uh, responsible for X. So it's a collective that operates, you know. So it was during the period of that collective that we were going to move towards permanent appointments and where you'd actually rotate directors general. So except for very specialized portfolios where you need 
a transport engineer or you need a particular skill set, other directors general should be able to be rotated. What is, was there a battle between the political and administrative? Yes, there was a healthy tension. Is there a tension now? Yes, there is. But I think the understanding should be that uh, according to the Public Finance Management Act, it's the responsibility of the Director General to manage the finances of the department, the procurement of the department, and the running of the department in that sector. And the minister has a role of executive oversight. But I think there's sometimes very much a sense of ministers behaving as though they are directors general or commissioners rather than ministers. And, and, and I think that's something that should be overcome. But I suppose that's where the debate comes in around the issue of sometimes the role of party and state. But let me pause at this point. Um, I think I just want to focus our attention on the local government level now. So quite recently, the Auditor General um, released a report just painting a picture of the state of local government. And I think a lot of us were left concerned with what she had to say. Um, and a lot of that was around, I guess I could say the misuse of funds to the point of them impacting on service delivery. Um, so I just wanted to get your views, your ideas around that and what you think can be done to then eliminate that rot that we see in local governments to ensure that, so, um, that real service delivery is then given or delivered to communities. You know, the rot you talk about is not limited to local government, but is seen to be particularly prevalent for a number of reasons. Uh, local government is really the face of government to the citizen, because that's at the level at which you live. Um, and this is why we also took an approach that said there must be a single window approach to government. For the citizen, it shouldn't matter whether this is a local authority or it's a provincial competence or a national competence. What's important for, the, for a citizen, for me and you included, is the delivery of services, basic services and quality services. And I think again, for me, we've seen a reality where uh, the Municipal Finance Management Act has not been implemented and come into effect to the extent required. And uh, you would find even irregularity on the provision of uh, tenders to people, uh, shoddy service delivery and all. And I think it goes back again to the issue of professionalism of uh, local uh, municipal services. What we had seen and what's actually been a perennial problem, even from our early years of our democracy, and mind you, this comes from our past, and I don't take an approach where people say, oh, there they go again, they're blaming apartheid. It's not a blaming of apartheid, it's the reality. 
that there is a path dependency in the public service, in government, where you cannot disassociate what's come, where you've come from. So look, the reality is that we know that at district and local level, there's always been challenges around the skills availability and, and, and skilled um, accountants um, and so on. And I use accountants as an example. I can talk about engineers. I can talk about infrastructure, um, engineers in civil engineers and so on. There's always been a shortage of those skills being deployed along the local level. And also infrastructure rollout, and hence there was and is a program called the Sienza Manji program. Um, I think that's the term where uh, this responsibility was uh, virtually given to the Development Bank of Southern Africa to assist in the rollout of social infrastructure at local government level. But again, because of uh, limitations around competencies as at that level. So I think the big issue is how do we ensure that we hold um, our municipal managers or our council managers, our mayors accountable? How do we ensure that the whole issue of uh, patronage gets eliminated? And I think a lot of this is related to the fact that we don't have functional ward committees. Because if your ward committee is vibrant and functional, you can't have the same level of uh, service delivery dysfunction. You know, you won't have the strong man or strong woman uh, syndrome because there's accountability, but that's sort of fallen away. And I think we should, uh, um, look at how we can draw on the structures that has been provided for um, through even this district model that will ensure that the voice of the citizen is heard at that community level. Because right now, you almost feel as though people don't have a recourse but to protest. But you see, the reason for this goes to the point that was raised earlier where there was a politicization of the public service, whether it was at local level, provincial or national level. And once you've politicized, it's not so easy to put the genie back into the bottle. So you could say to people at a particular point, and here union leaders who may be ministers today, played a role in the period of 2006 to uh, 2007 onwards, where they actually, and, and party leaders too, where they provoked protest action at a local level because they wanted a particular dominant group to be there in the political party. It's around my point around not separating party and state. So when you have that leadership there, you now want to say to people, no, 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 you see, now you must stop because I'm the minister for public works now. So please don't have massive strikes without any reason. 
because we are here. Citizens don't work in that way. You know, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. There's a need for consistency. There's a need for integrity. There's a need for principles. And it's to say to people, you know, you can actually petition government. You can use your ward structures. You can do the following, not because you favor an individual, but because we want to ensure that there's a provision of uh, equitable service delivery. That must happen, you know? And the last point I want to make, which goes to the earlier question you raised, please let's not forget, not every public servant is incompetent. Not every public servant is useless. Not every public servant has no qualifications. There are good public servants who go to work every day to serve. You find them in the teaching profession, you find them in police, you find them in corrections, you find them in health. And I mean, we've got to applaud them, but let's take out the rotten apples because at the end of the day, it's said that in a forest of a million trees growing, you hear the loud crash of that single tree. And I think that's the reality we confront. And we need to ensure that when that single tree crashes, the rest of uh, the trees continue growing. And that's what we want. So let's root out corruption, but also let's ensure that this is where public, private sector, and communities must work together to make a difference where the communities actually say, we are not going to allow for the degradation of infrastructure. We want maintenance and we're going to demand it from uh, our local authority. But whilst that's happening, we're also not going to simply throw garbage on the open field. We are going to ensure that we keep our community clean. And let me use an example of both Nigeria and Rwanda, and I think to a degree, even in Namibia with Vintuk itself. Now, Lagos is known to be a very populous city, Lagos in Nigeria. But I can tell you one day every month on a Saturday, everyone in Lagos for a certain number of hours just shuts down the city. So if you want to get to the airport, you better get out before that shutdown. And they clean Lagos City. Now, if it can be done in Lagos City, why is it not happening where I stay, where you stay, in Kayalicha, in um, Pumalanga Township in KwaZulu-Natal, why not in uh, any other part of the country? We need to have pride. And that's why we had what was called at one point the Vukuzenzela program under President Thabo Mbeki that was supposed to bring communities and government together. But you see, today we think someone else is going to do it for us. And we don't actually think that we should roll up our sleeves. And we may only do it when it's Madiba's birthday. And that's not good enough. Because at the end of the day, building community is about what I do every day, all the time. Uh, 
listening to you speak, Madam, uh, I I'm getting a sense that there is a there is a general agreement amongst the leadership about the things that need to happen at the local level. Um, there's been a revitalization of your back to basics program and so on by 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 Copter. Yeah, to, to get to really get municipalities uh, to turn them around. But here is the point for me. Um, you said this correctly to say the local government is a face of, of the state or public service. You know, that's where the, uh, your, your, your citizens interface with, 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 with the state. But it gives a sense of the extent to which the state, now I'm talking about the three, the three spheres, is, is not well positioned to drive uh, the socio-economic transformation agenda. Does it worry you that uh, we are about how many years now to 2030, about nine years? And the National Development Plan, which sets out, you know, uh, parameters of fighting poverty, you know, uh, improving educational outcomes and so on and so on, is so contingent on a capable state. Yet the state as we, as we have it right now, and the things that we are describing uh, here in this conversation, points to a, a rather, uh, for the level of a better word, a, a, a very constrained state uh, such that it is unable to deliver on, on, the, on the noble objectives that we have there in the National Development Plan. What do you think needs to happen uh, on an urgent basis to make sure that by 2030, we achieve a lot of objectives that we have set out in the National Development Plan? So I know it's I be be difficult. <laughs> can I be provocative? Can I be provocative? Yes, yes. Of course. Yes. And uh, I'm going to be completely so. You know, we sometimes overlook the basics. And, and, and that shows to a degree, we may not wish to imagine that, why we can't even get the more complex issues right. Mm. So let me give you an example. I don't know when last you've driven past union buildings. Hey, and a couple of months ago. <laughs> so if you drive, when you drove past union buildings then, and if you drive past it today, there's a small community that has pitched up uh, some chochombes of sorts yeah. on the lawns. And I believe uh, with the legalization of particular uh, herbs, uh, there's also quite a thriving garden there. Um, and this is uh, some leader of one or other traditional group that came there, I think nearly two years ago to leave particular demands and have subsequently built a small community there. That is one of our national key points. The union buildings forms part of our national symbols. And the fact that you have that shows there's a major breakdown. That's where the office of the president is, the office of the deputy president. That's the seat of government, and that happens. So what do you expect out uh, in some or other municipality where you have a breakdown of sanitation and people just don't care as stuff? 
We also, and I hope it was wrong, um, you'd recall a year ago, we had incredible rains in Gauteng. And there was some uh, video that went around that showed pouring rain into union buildings itself. It seemed to come through the roof. There was obviously a public servant who took it upon her or himself to take that uh, video to share the extent of the deluge of that rain. But I don't know if that person didn't think that, look, I am actually working in this building. Where is public service in terms of ensuring that we maintain our buildings? We've also heard about uh, buildings in Gauteng, a provincial government and even in national government that have become a hazard. So I'm giving you one small example. I'm talking about the micro, the small. It means there's something wrong with the maintenance budget. So, you know, sometimes when we cut, um, when we cut budgets and we say we've got to have a more austere budget, we cut maintenance. But at the end of the day, this is quite central. So it's also similar to when you roll out new infrastructure. And this I also take not only from my stint in government, but even in the African Development Bank when I was there. You know, when you put uh, and you put the infrastructure rollout plan, you don't just plan for the infrastructure that you roll out. You've also got to plan and factor in the maintenance post. Mm -hmm. So typically, and I give you a different example, when we were looking at a massive road infrastructure project that was in the uh, Manu River Union countries. So this is um, uh, uh, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea. As we were looking at this huge project, we also looked at uh, creating an entity that would look at the maintenance of that infrastructure, that road, post the completion of projects. So you get a sense that this is missing. So I want to go to your specific point where you said, uh, so we have a national development plan. And would we have completed our work in 2030? So again, if I want to be provocative, the question may be, is it really a plan or is it a vision? <laughs> Has it been costed? Have we really unpacked it to the extent to which it's required? And we've also seen that the president had, um, I think, as part of what is now called the recovery plan, spoke about four core strategic areas or priority interventions that was at the heart of that plan. And he said a massive rollout of infrastructure throughout the country he said a rapidly, rapidly expand energy generation capacity. 
He thirdly referred to employment stimulus to create jobs and support livelihood, and then a drive for industrial growth. So you guys are journalists. I mean, you're asking like really the hard questions. <laughs> so when you talk about the rollout of infrastructure, the president had said, and I quote, we have developed a robust pipeline of projects that will completely transform the landscape of our cities, towns, and rural areas, close quotes. So the big question, and I think you should get the president, would be, we would be very happy what to get are the precise <laughs> interventions that will completely transform that mm. landscape because that information was not required. Mm. The president also spoke about a list of 50 strategic integrated projects and 12 special projects that were gazetted in July of last year. And he said those catalytic projects, and I quote, have been prioritized for immediate implementation with all regulatory processes fast-tracked, enabling over 340 billion in new investment, close quotes. I don't know what the catalytic projects are, and maybe you know. I also don't know whether funds are indeed available for the immediate implementation. And then he spoke about the infrastructure fund that would provide 100 billion in catalytic finance over the next decade. And so we went on. Now, the only thing that is certain about that funding is that at least 10 billion will be spent annually. Now, we know that's not enough to change the face of communities required. So let me rest my case on that. Yeah, I, well, actually, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a very important point that um, I, I thought you were coming towards, which also forms part of those uh, pillars of the recovery plan, which is a state capacity or building state capacity. Whether you're talking about 100 billion that has got to be rolled over a period or whatever it is that you've got to do, that is dependent on the state. Uh, if I were to take you back to the, to the point that we, we, we made earlier about uh, local, local government, there's money that were dispersed to local government in response to COVID. And even at that point, some people raise questions about the capacity of municipalities to even disperse those amounts. And here is the, the report by the Auditor General saying some of those amounts, up to about 5.5 billion. Um, I don't know over how long uh, this period. That cannot be accounted for. So it, it, it speaks to that capacity. So the, the, the question, maybe I should not say it's an argument. I'm not making an argument. I'm throwing it to you to say the issue of state capacity is so important that anything that we think of doing, all out infrastructure, is very much contingent on, 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 on the state. And unfortunately, that state is not well positioned. Uh, I don't know if, if you want to respond specifically to that issue. I, I am not going to be as fatalistic as you are, because I think sometimes as South Africans, we're fatalistic. Okay, so there's not state capacity. 
Mm. But who's doing something about that? Mm. Has there been an emergency meeting where the mm. Minister of Public Service has sat down with all provincial premiers mm. and mayors, at least mayors of the major metros? Has there yes. been an emergency cabinet meeting that mm. brought these players in that says, mm. On the revitalization of the public service, this is the plan, and this is how we see it being rolled out. Has that happened? If it's not happened, I mean, we can't blame public servants just as an amorphous group when the leadership that should be given is not there. Because we also had put in place what we call ministerial and MEC meetings. So they're supposed to be min-mix, at least quarterly. And you will bring in the mayors. And you have a structure like Salga. Surely everyone must come and be accountable for this. Surely we must put the plan in place. And have we also named and shamed those ministers and departments that have not delivered? Have we dealt with the challenge you've raised where you, you've reflected on ministerial political interference in uh, the functioning of government departments where they've held departments to ransom around uh, the rollout of particular programs because they may have a preferred bidder or service provider rather than going through a full process of procurement. Um, is Treasury and Department of Public Service and Administration playing their role as they should at the center of government to make a difference? Or have they also been juniorized in the process? And what's being done to make a difference? Um, I, I, I can feel your, your passion coming through, but, but I would like to <laughs> move you towards what I think is, is one of your, your other passion, which is gender transformation. Um, there, was, there was a report that was uh, published by Accountancy SA, which said that 68% of all senior management positions are held by men. And uh, the JC as well is, has not done any, any better way, even though women make up over 50% of the population, but yet only 20% of board members on JSC listed companies are female. And you as, as a female as well, um, on, on several boards of JSC listed companies, do you think that um, government or even the private sector on that front is, uh, is sufficiently seized with the issue of gender transformation? And where, where are the gaps? And where do you think that um, we should, uh, what needs to be done to give effect to this noble goal? Well, I think you've, you've uh, pointed to the data around yeah. limitations in the private sector, and in particular, both publicly listed and um, other companies. Um, but this is the ongoing uh, battle, um, and 
don't even need to use uh, the term battle. I mean, we, we know that patriarchy is universal, but so is racism. So just as you talk about gender, you can also talk about race. You can uh, um, deal with this particular matter. And this is where we should keep on going. Now, the one advantage is that Southern Africa and Africa is actually doing much better than many other parts of the world in terms of representation, but I don't give that as a cop-out for the rate at which we're going. We must do better, but that's why it's necessary for those of us who serve on the boards of listed companies, for us not to become complacent and consider ourselves to be exceptions and actually considered great to be exceptional. At the end of the day, you know, it's because of my competence, it's because of my skill set, it's because, because, because that I think it's okay. We must ensure that we keep on opening the door. There is a regulatory framework that this government has put in place, a policy framework that says it's important to be more inclusive. The JSE has actually followed that lead and, and requires a reporting on an annual basis on diversity on boards. And at the end of the day, it also makes good business sense when you have diverse boards, when you have women and men, and when you have a diverse skill set, diverse racial background and all that, you do well. You may actually do better than otherwise. Doesn't mean that you're not doing well being the same old, same old, but you can do even better. So it makes for a good business case, but it also reflects that you are inclusive in your outlook and how you approach things. And I can tell you, you know, having a diverse board and having diverse skill sets allows you to deal with challenges and problems in a more holistic way. Okay, sure. So I, I think if, if we can take the conversation to, to also our, our political parties where um, women don't uh, hold particular positions of, of power. Yes, they are at the end part of the leadership, but they don't really hold what you term strategic positions, for instance. And, and what, what, what do you think needs to be done then to, to ensure that women play a, a sort of a more prominent role even in our political parties? I wouldn't say women do not hold strategic positions. In some parties, definitely not. But if you look at the African National Congress, uh, women have been in the top six of the party, you know? Um, at the last election, women lost out, you know, because we had a chair previously who was a woman. Um, and we also had the deputy secretary general who is uh, a woman. And that's been the case. I actually have a bit of an objection to that because I think they tend to think that uh, the DSG, deputy secretary general position is for a woman. They should actually consider secretary general position. But I think you're quite right. It's about or, or, time. Or, or, or even the presidency. I'm coming. You were, jumping, you were jumping before I got there. 
I, I was saying, and we should also ensure that women hold again the chair, chair, chairman, chairperson position and the position of president. But what I don't want us to confuse uh, is don't make it automatic that when you're the president of the party, you should be the president of the republic. So I would even have a woman in the top six or in the National Working Committee and say that woman should be appointed as president of the republic based on the abilities of the woman. So don't just automatically link one position with who becomes president. Um, so yes, parties aren't doing well. And, and you, you get, tend to get a sense that if patriarchy consolidates, it consolidates in politics. And you see even around the battle for local government uh, and the heart of local government elections, you're going to find very few women as mayoral candidates. But that's why in parties, there's been the insistence that there is a quota, and I see nothing wrong with quotas, especially if we provide support to candidates, ensure that they have the required networks, they are skilled up, there is research capacity, and they keep on reading, studying, and developing themselves. Because mind you, this comment is not only for women, because you have a number of mediocre men out there. Look at all political parties, including the opposition. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think I think we don't want to mess it. Uh, <laughs> I think I think that was a nice way to close off this uh, conversation. Uh, thank you very much for thank you honoring, honoring our invitation. It was indeed a lovely conversation, and and hopefully at, at some point we'll call you for, for a follow-up discussion on some of these issues because I think there's a lot that we can uh, chew on with you, yeah, regarding the public uh, policy space. Thank you, and thanks for your time, and thanks for the provocation and provocative. <laughs> so, if there's anything that was extremely provocative, I'll simply say blame them. You know, yeah. <laughs> thank you very much for your time. No, thanks. Thanks, thanks, okay. Thank you. To keep up to date with public policy and current affairs, follow us on our social media platforms. You can find us on LinkedIn as Frontline Africa Advisory, Twitter at FAA underscore advisory, Facebook, Frontline Africa Advisory, YouTube, Frontline Conversations, and our website, www.frontlineafrica.co.za. You don't